The chasm was merely one of the offices of that pit of dark blackness that lies beneath <coughs> us everywhere. The mayable fame, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Ghosts are always hungry. R.D. Jameson. Prologue, driving south. What was the worst thing you've ever done? I don't want to tell you that, but I'll tell you the worst thing that ever happened to me. The most dreadful thing. Because he thought he would have problems taking the children over the border into Canada, he drove south, skirting the cities wherever they came, and taking anonymous freeways which were like a separate country, as travel was itself like a separate country. The sameness both comforted and stimulated him, so that on the first day he was able to drive for twenty hours straight through. They ate at McDonald's, at a root beer stands. When he was hungry, he left the freeway and took the state highway parallel to it, knowing that the driveway was never more than 10 or 20 miles away. Then he woke up the children. They both gnawed at their hamburgers or chili dogs. The children never sleeping more, speaking more than to tell him what. The child never speaking more than to tell him what she wanted. Most of the time she slept. First night, the man remembered the light bulbs illuminating his license plates. Though this was, would later prove to be unnecessary, swung off the freeway into a dark country road long enough to unscrew the light bulbs and toss them into the field. He took two took handfuls of mud from beds beside the road and smeared them over the plates. Wiping his hands his trousers, he went back round to the driver's seat and opened the door. The child was sleeping with her back straight. At against the seat, her mouth closed. He appeared to be perfectly composed. He didn't... He still did not know what he was going to have to do to her. In West Virginia, he came awake with a jerk. He realised that for seven seconds he'd been driving in his sleep. We were going to pull up and take a nap. He left the, the freeway outside of Clarksburg and drove on a state road where he saw Against the sky, a red revolving sign with the words Pioneer Village on it, on it in white. He is keeping his eyes open, and only by willpower. His mind did not feel right. It seemed that tears were hanging just behind his eyes. Very soon he would involuntarily begin to weep. Once in a parking lot of the shopping centre, he drove to the row furthest from the entrance and backed up the car against a wire fence. Behind him was a square brick factory which manufactured plastic animal replicas for display for golden chicken trucks. The factory's aspect yard was half filled with giant plastic chickens and cows. In the midst stood a bl- giant blue ox. The chickens were unfinished, larger than the cows, a dully white. Before him lay his, this nearly empty section of the lot. Then a thick cluster of cars in rows, then a series of low sandstone coloured buildings, which was the shopping centre. Can we look at the big chickens? the girl asked. He shook his head. We're not getting out of the car. We're just going to sleep. He locked the doors and rolled up the windows. Under the girl's child's steady, unexpected gaze, he bent over, felt under the seat and drew out a length of rope. 
Hold your hands out, he said, after almost smiling. She held out her small hands, balled into fists. He pulled them together and wound the rope twice round her wrists, knotted it, and then tied her ankles together. When he saw how much rope was left, he held out the surplus with one arm and pulled roughly, roughly pulled the child to him with the other. When he wound the rope up about them both, looping them together, and made the final knot, as he stretched out across the front seat, she was lying on top of him, her hands bunched in the middle of his stomach, her head on his chest. She breathed easily and regularly, as if she expected no more than what he had done. The clock of the dashboard said it was 5.30, and the air was just beginning to turn cooler. He hitched his legs forward and leaned his head back against the headdress. To the noises of the traffic, he fell asleep. Awakened, it seemed, immediately, his face filled with sweat, the fainted, faintly acid, arid, crazy odour of Charles' hair in his nostrils. It was now, it was dark now. He must actually have slept for hours. They were gone undiscovered. Imagine being found in a super shopping centre parking lot in Clarksburg, West Virginia, with a little girl tied to his sleeping body. He groaned, shifted himself to one side and worked the girl. Like him, she came immediately into wakefulness. She bent back her head and regarded him. With no fear, only intensity in her gaze, he hurriedly untied the knots, dragged the rope from them around him. His neck complained when he sat upright. You want to go to the bathroom, he asked. She nodded. Where? Beside the car. Right here? In the parking lot? You heard me. He thought again, that she nearly smiled. He looked at the girl's intense small face, framed in the black hair. And you let me? I'm going to be holding onto your hand. But you won't look for the first time. He's so concerned. He shook his head. He moved. She moved her hand to the lock of her door. But he shook his head again and took her wrist and held it tightly. Out of my side, he said. I pulled out his own lock and got out. Still clutching the girl's bunny wrist, she began to slide her sideways through the door. A girl was seven or eight with short black hair, wearing a little dress of some thin pink material. On her upright bare feet were faded blue canvas sneakers, fraying at the tops of the heels. Childishly, she put one bare leg first down, then wiggled around to swing the other out of the car. He pulled her around to the factory fence. The girl bent her back, head back and looked up. You promise you won't watch? I won't watch, she said. At a moment he did not watch, but let his head roll back as she stooped, forcing him to lean sideways. His eyes drifted over the grotesque plastic animal behind the fence. Then he heard some fabric, cotton, moving under his skin. Looking down, his left arm, left hand was extended, so she was far away from him as she could get. A pink, cheap pink dress had been pulled up over her waist. She too was looking at the plastic animals. When the girl was finished, she, she shook, took his eyes from, from her, knowing that she would glance at him. She stood up and waited for him to tell her what to do next. He pulled up her back towards the car. What do you do for a living? she asked. He laughed out loud with surprise. Cocktail party question. Nothing. Where are we going? Are you taking me somewhere? He opened the door and stood aside.
As he climbed back into the car, some place, he said. Sure, I'm taking you someplace. He got in beside her and she moved across the seat to the floor. Where? We'll see you when we get there. Again, he drove all night. Again, the girl slept most of the time, coming awake to stare out of the windshield. She always slept, sitting up, like a doll in her tennis shoes and pink dress, to ask him odd questions. Are you a policeman? She'd asked him once. And after seeing her exit sign, was Columbia? It's a city. Like New York? Yes. Like Clarksburg? She, he nodded. Are we always going to sleep in the car? Not always. Can I play the radio? He said yes. He leaned forward and twisted the knob. The car was faded with static. Two or three voices speaking at the same time. He punched another button. The came crowded hiss interrupted. Rapted from the speaker. Twist the door, he said, frowning. Her face concentrated. Again, slowly to turn the selector. In a moment, she looked into a clear signal. Don't you pardon? I love this, she told him. So for hours they drove through the songs and rhythms of country music, the stations wiggling and changing, the disc jockeys swapping names and accents, sponsors succeeding each other in a revolving list of insurance companies, toothpaste, soap, Dr. Pepper and Pepsi Cola, acne preparations, funeral parlours, petroleum jelly, bargain watch watches, aluminum siding, dandruff shampoos, but the music remained the same, a vast self-conscious story, a sort of seamless, repetitious epic in which women married truckers and no-good gamblers, but stood by them until they got a divorce and a man in Sutton Bar plotting seductions how to get home, back home. They come together, hot as two dollar pistols and parted to discuss and worried about the babies. Sometimes the car wouldn't start, sometimes the TV was busted. Sometimes a bar slows down, a fruit you run out into the street, your pockets turned inside out. There was nothing that was so but not banal. There was no phase that, that was not a cliche, but Charles sat there satisfied, a passive, dozing off to Willie Nelson, waking up to let Lynn. A man just drove, distracted by the endless soap opera of American bottom dogs. Once he asked her, have you heard of a man called Edward Wadley? She did not reply, but got him liberally. Have you? Who's he? He's my uncle, she said, he said. And she smiled at him. How about a man called named Sears James? She shook her head, still smiling. A man named Ricky Hawthorne? Again, she shook her head. There's no point in continuing. You do not know why he'd bother to ask. In the first place, it was not impossible. He'd heard of these names. Of course she had never learned heard of them. Still in South Carolina, he thought that a highway policeman was following him. The police car was 30, 20 yards behind, keeping the same distance, whatever the man did. He thought he would see the state cop speaking to his radio. Immediately he cut speed by five miles an hour and changed lanes, but the police car would not pass. He felt a deep trembling in his chest and Edwin. He realised the police car gaining on him, turning on his siren, forcing him to the side of the road. Then the question began. It was about six in the afternoon and the freeway was crowded. He felt himself being drawn hopelessly along the, the tra- with the traffic. At the mercy of whatever, whoever was in the police car, helpless, trapped, he had to think. He was simply being drawn to, towards Charleston. Pulled by the traffic through miles of flat, scrubby little country, 
suburbs are always visible in the distance. Miserable collections of little houses with framed garages. He could not remember the number of freeways he was on. In a rearview mirror, behind a long row of cars, behind a police car, an old truck sent out a tall colour of a black smoke through a chimney-like pipe beside the engine. He feared the patrolman cruising up outside him, shouting, Get over! He could imagine the girl shouting, a high, tinny voice shouting, He makes me, baby, come, came, come up with him, came, come with him, ties me up into the place where he sleeps. The southern sun seemed to salt his face, to grind his paws. A state patrolman swung out to the next lane and began to draw up towards him. Arsel, that's not your girl. Who's that girl? Then they put him in a cell, began to beat him, working on him methodically, night sticks, turning his skin purple. But none of that happened. Shortly after eight o'clock, he pulled over to the side of the road. It was a narrow country road, loose red, red dirt, piled on his shoulders as if he'd been only recently done of, out, out of earth. Out of the earth. He was no longer sure what state he was in, South Carolina. Or Georgia, even though those states were fluid, as if they and all the rest of them could leak into one another, pushing forward like high, the highways. It all looked wrong. He was in one place. No one could live here. No one could think here. In this brutal landscape, unfamiliar vines, green and rope like, struggled up the low bank beside his right car. Fugate had been E, a half past half. Half hour. All of it was wrong. All of it. He looked at the girl, this girl he had kidnapped. He was sleeping in a doll-like way, her back straight against the seat and her feet in the rippled sneakers, dangling over the floor. She slept for so too much. Suppose she was sick. Suppose she was dying. He woke as he was watching her. I have to go to the bathroom again, she said. Are you okay? You're not sick, are you? I have to go to the bathroom. Okay grunted and moved to open the do- his door. Let me go by myself. I won't run away. I won't do anything, I promise. He looked at her serious face, her black eyes settling on his skin. What, where could I go anyway? I don't even know where I am. I don't either. So, I had to have, had to have him sometime. He couldn't hold on her, on her at every moment. You promise? He asked, knowing the question was forward. She nodded. He said, all right. You promise you won't drive away? Yes. She opened the door and left the car. It was all she could do, not to watch her. But it was a test, not to watch her. A test he wished overwhelmingly that he had her hand trapped in his fist. She was scrambling up the bank, running off, screaming. But no, she was not screaming. It often happened that the terrible things he imagined, worse things, did not occur. Well, gave a hitch and things went back where it had always been. When the girl climbed back in the car, he was flooded with relief. It happened again. No black hole had opened up for him. He closed his eyes and saw an empty freeway, divided by white lines, and reeling bef- before him. I'd like to find a motel, he said. She leaned back in the seat, waiting for him to do whatever he wanted. Radio was slow, turned low. The sounds from a station in Augusta, Georgia. A silky lifting guitar drifted out for a moment, an image leaped to his mind. The girl's dead. Her tongue protruding, her eyes bulging. She gave him no resistance. Then for a moment, he was standing as if he were, as if he were standing on the street 
in New York, some street in the early fifties. One of these streets were well-dressed women walked with sheepdogs because they were one. Those women walking along, tall, wearing beautiful faded jeans, bent his shirt and a deep tan, walking along towards him with sunglasses pushed to the top of her head. A huge sheepdog padded up beside her, wagging his rump. He was nearly close enough to see the freckles exposed by the undone top buttons of the woman's shirt. Ah, oh, but when he was then he was right again. You heard a low music guitar music. And before he switched on the ignition, he patted the top of the girl's head. Had to have to get her some hotel, he said. For now he just continued, protected by the cocoon and the numbers, but the mechanics are driving. He was almost alone on the dark road. Are you going to hurt me? she girl asked. How should I know? You wouldn't, I think. You're my friend. That was then it was not as if he were on the street in New York. He was on the street, watching the moment of the dog. The suntan came towards him. Again he saw a little random scattering of freckles behind below a collarbone. He knew how he would taste if he put his tongue there. As often in New York he could not see the sun. He could feel it. A heavy, aggressive sun. The woman was a stranger. An important. He was not supposed to know of her. He was just a type. A taxi went by. He was unaware of the ironing railings on his right side and lettering on the windows of, of, a, of a French restaurant on the other side of the street. Through the soles of his boots, the pavement sent up heat. Somewhere above, a man was shouting one word after another, over another. He was there. He was a portion of his motion. How it must have shown in his face. A woman with a dog looked at him curiously and then hardened her face and moved to the outer edge of the sidewalk. Could she speak? Could someone in some whatever sort of experience? This was, at least, other senses, ordinary human, only human senses. Could you talk to the people you meet in hallucinations? Or would you answer back? He opened his mouth. I have to get out, he was going to say, but he was already back in the stolen car. A soggy lump that once been his two potato chips lay on his tongue. That what was the first thing you've ever done? And that seemed to show that he was only a few miles from Valdosa. He drove unthinkingly on, not daring to look at the child, and therefore not knowing she would be more awake or sleeping, but feeling her eyes nevertheless. Eventually he passed the sign that informed him that he was ten miles from the free Friendless city in the south. It looked like a southern town, a little industry in a way in a machine. Shops and dye stompers, surreal groups of cone grated metal, huts under arched lights, yards littered with canalized trucks, further in wooden houses in need of paint groups of black men standing on corners, their faces alike in the dark. New roads were scurrying through the land, then ended abruptly, wheeze almost approaching in a town proper, the teenagers patrolling endlessly, vacating their old cars. He passed a low building, incredulously new, a sign in New South, with a sign reading Palamento Motor Inn. He reversed down and the street back into the building. A girl with sweat lacquered hair and candy pink lipstick gave him a meanless dead smile 
a room with twin beds. Myself and my daughter, in a registry vote, Lamar Burgess, 155 Bridge Street, Stone, Nightington, Con. After he handed her a night payment check, payment in cash, she gave him a key. The cubicle contained two single beds, an iron textured brown carpet, a lying green wall, two pictures, a kitten tilting its head, an Indian looking on it into a loose gorge, cliff top, a tattered set, a door into a blue tile bathroom. He sat on the toilet seat, the girl, while well, the girl undressed and got into bed. When he peeked out to check on her, she was lying beneath a sheet with her face to the wall, closed the scattered on the door floor. A nearly empty bag with tater chips lay beside her. He ducked back into the bathroom, stripped, got into the shower, which blessed him. For a moment he felt almost as though he were back to his old life. Not Lamar Burgess, but Don Wonderfully, one-time resident of Bolez, California, offered two novels, one of which had made some money. Lover for a time of Elmar Mobley, brother of defunct David Wilbley. There it was. It was no good. He could not get away from it. The mine was a trap. It was a cage that slammed down under for him. However, he got to where he was. He was there, stuck there in the Palomoto motor inn. He turned off the shower. All traces of blessing departed. In a little room, only the weak light over his bed to eliminate those ghostly surroundings, he pulled on his jeans and opened his suitcase. A hunting knife was wrapped in his shirt. He unrolled it so the knife fell out on the bed. Carrying it out the chunky bone handle, he crossed the girl's bed. She slept with her mouth open. Perspiration gleamed on her forehead. For a little time, he sat beside her, holding the knife in his right hand, ready to use it. But this night, he could not. Giving up, giving in, he shook her arm until her eyelids fluttered. Well, who are you? he asked. I want to sleep. Who are you? Go away, please. Who are you? I'm asking you. Who are you? You know. I know. You know. I told you. What's your name? Angie. Angie what? Angie Moe. I told you before. He held the knife before his back. Behind his back. So that he could not see it. I want to sleep, she said. You woke me up. He turned her back to him again. Fascinated, he kept sleep. He watched sleep settle over her. His fingertips twitched. Eyelids contracted. A breathing changed. It was as if to exclude him. She had willed herself to sleep. Angie? Angela? Angela Mole? He did not sound like the name he had been given him when he first taken her into the car, Minnesota. Minnesota. Some name like that. Italian name. Not Marley. He held a knife in both hands. Both hands. A black bone handle jammed in his naked belly his elbows out all he had to do was thrust it forward and jerk it up using all his strength in the end sometime between three in the morning he crossed over to his bed next morning before they checked out she spoke to him while he was looking at the maps you shouldn't have to ask me those questions what questions he'd been keeping his back turned at a quest she got into a pink dress and he suddenly had a feeling she had he had to turn around right now to see her you could see his knife in her, her hands, though, his back inside the rolled-up skirt, and could feel it just beginning to prick his skin. Can I turn around now? Yeah, sure. Slowly, still feeling the knife, his uncle's knife, beginning to enter his skin. 
He turned sideways on a chair. A girl was sitting on her, on my bed, watching him, her tense, beautiful face. What questions, you know, tell me. She took, shook her head, and could, would say no more. Do you want to see where we're going? The girl came forward, came towards him. Not slowly, but miserably. He says not wishing to display suspicion. Here, he said, pointing to the spot on the map. Panama City, Florida. Well, we'd be able to see the water, maybe. We won't sleep in a car? No, it's fun. you far away, we can get there tonight. We'll take this road, this one, see? Oh, her. She's not interested, she hung over. One side, bored and worried, she said. Do you think I am pretty? That's the worst thing that ever happened to you. Then you look, took off your clothes at night, beside the bed of a nine-year-old girl. You were holding a knife, and that knife wanted to kill her. No, other things were worse. Not far over the state line, and not on the highway, it's shown energy on the map, but a two-lane country road. It drew up before a white ball building, Buddy Supplies. You want me to come in with me, Angie? He opened the door to the side and got into that childish way if she were climbing down a ladder. He held the screen door open for her. A fat man in a white suit sat like a humpty dumpty on the counter. You cheat on your income tax, he said. You're the first customer of the day. You believe that? Twenty, twelve, twenty, twelve thirty, and you're the first guy through the door. So, we said, said bending forward and scrutinizing them. Hell no, you didn't beat Uncle Jam. Sam, you did you do worse than that. You the guy called four five people up in Tallahassee the other day. What? he said. I just came here for some food, my daughter food my daughter got you, the man said. I used to be a cop out to Pennsylvania. Twenty years I bought this place because a man told me I would turn over a hundred dollars of profit a week. I had a lot of crooks in this world. Anybody comes in, I tell them what kind of crook they are. And now I've got you straight. You're not a killer. You're a kidnapper. No, I... He felt sweat pouring down his sides. My girl, don't... You can't shit me. Twenty years a cop. Randa looked frankly around the store for the girl. Funny he saw her staying, staring gravely at the sh- shelf, stopped with jams of jars of peanut butter. Angie said, Angie, come on. Oh, hold on, the fat man said. I'm just trying to raise out... Well, get a rise at you. Don't flip out, out on nothing. You might want some of that peanut butter, little girl. Angie looked at him and nodded. We take off the shelf and bring it here. Anything else, mister? Of course, if you're Bernardo Hafferman, I'd like to bring you in. I've still got my service revolver around here somewhere. Not give that. I'll tell you that for free. He, he was, he saw, all a, a, a weary mockery. Yet he could scarcely conceal his trembling. Wasn't that someone, something an ex-cop could, could notice? He turned away towards his arms and shelves. Hey, listen to this, the man said to his back. If you are in that much trouble, you might get the hell out of here right now. No, he said, I need some things. You don't look much like that, girl. Blindly began taking things off the shelves, anything. Jar of pickles, a box of apple turnovers, canned ham, two or three other cans he didn't bother to look at. Then he took, uh, then he took them, 
he took to the counter. Fat man Buddy was staring at him suspiciously. You might look at sugar making it up a bit, he said. I haven't much sleep. I've been driving for a couple of days in French and Bessie descended. I have to take my little girl to the grandmother's. She's in temper. Angie swirled around, clutching two jars of crunchy peanut butter and gaped at him. And she said this, Oh, temper, I won't count. The mother and me split up. I have to get a job. Get things out to get put together again. Right, Angie? The girl's mouth hung open. Your name's Angie? The fat man asked her. She nodded. This guy's your daddy? He thought he'd just, like, fall down. Now, now he is, she laughed. The man laughed. Now he is, just a bit like a kid. Can't only figure out the brain of a kid. You've got to be doing some kind of genius. All right, nervous, I guess. I'll take your money, still sitting on the counter. You hang up the purses by bending out to one side, punching the buttons of the register. You better get some rest. You remind me of that million, that million guys I took into my old station. Outside, Waverly said to her, thanks for saying that. Saying what? Pertly, silver surely, and again almost mechanically, eerily, ticking her head. Side to side, saying what? Saying what? Saying what? 